Janet, would you be willing to be a surprise reader? Now, however, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been demonstrated, having been witnessed to by the law and the prophets. But the righteousness of God is through the trustworthiness of Jesus for all who trust. For there is no distinction, for since all have sinned and come short of God's character, they have been set right as a gift of His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth through His death as an establishment of the means of trust. This, this death was to show His righteousness, because in His forbearance He had apparently passed over in His former sins. This was to show at the present time that He is righteous and sets right those who have faith in Jesus. I'm thinking I'm going to block people over here. I'm going to have to move. Uh, now I can see the screen, not block anybody. So you're going to see this again. This is my own rendering of the passage. Uh, but uh, I have a, I don't, I, it's not a dark side, it's a, another side <laughs> in my life. Um, when, I, when I got my PhD in 2002 and I was celebrating with some high ups at PUC, including the president, Malcolm stepped up to me towards the end and he said that he was so sad that I hadn't done my, my uh, doctorate in New Testament. <laughs> well, that is because I did my master's in New Testament from his brother, Graham, at Loma Linda University. So, Ross Winkle, anytime I mention that I have a master's degree in New Testament, he says, traitor. <laughs> so, so there's this kind of minor key note in my journey. And in 1984, I began writing what would become my master's thesis. And this is not going to make any sense to you who don't know Greek, but uh, I should have left out the two. My father discovered that I had put that in erroneously. It's not in the, in the Greek New Testament. That's the article, by the way. And, and that I had put it in erroneously after I had done my master's thesis, gotten my degree and everything. I was like, Dad, you can't do this to me. <laughs> Anyway, in Romans 1, 16 to 17, 3, 21 to 26, an exegetical study. Now, this was in the days when the three Bs, Karl Barth, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, and Rudolf Boltmann, and 1K, Ernst Kostmann, held the keys to the theological and exegetical kingdom of Romans. <laughs> As I studied the commentaries, I felt that only a little had changed since the days of the Reformation. And the more I read Romans and Greek, the more I diverged from this tradition. So we're going to focus on the word dikaiosune. It is related to a fairly large number of words beginning with dik, or dik, probably is more accurate. Uh, dik is uh, the root of these words, of course, uh, such as dikaios, dikaio, dike, and dikaiomata, dikastes. One would naturally assume that all words with the deep root have only legal meanings. Why would one naturally assume that? Because you look at the uh, chaos um, it can mean just. A dikaio can mean to make just. Uh, decay is penal justice. 
and the Kayamata's rights, which it has to do with legalities, and the Castes is judge. So uh, you're dealing with a lot of legal kinds of terms. According to Scott and Little Greek English Dictionary, the first definition for dikaiosyne is righteousness. The second definition is justice, a word that means the exercise of equity or fairness, first and foremost. It has penal connotations, second. The Septuagint translators use dikaiosyne mostly for sedek and sedekah, often translated righteousness. These Hebrew terms are used in both legal and non-legal settings. Occasionally, dikaiosuni is rendered for mishpat, which is Hebrew justice. And again, Hebrew justice primarily means fairness, equity, secondarily, penal justice. It's also rendered for emeth, which means truth, or trust. Tov, which means goodness, kesed, which means kindness, and other Hebrew terms. I'd like to spend a little bit of time on kesed. That is a word that defies an English parallel. It, it has connotations in it that just, it, it's very hard to define in a single word. So uh, some, some places it seems to mean covenant loyalty, uh, but not other places it seems to mean kindness, sometimes even mercy. So I've come to try to find an overarching definition that I could use that would be a working definition. I have not proved this yet, but this is my current working definition. Uh, and that is that Kesset is going beyond what is legally required to do something for someone. Uh, they don't have to, but they go beyond what is legally required to do it. And there's other Hebrew terms that Dikaiosune is used in Septuagint for. Another related word, DK, often represents penal justice. This word is used only three times in the New Testament. So what I'm taking you through is a process of looking at this word uh, in the Septuagint. We're starting with Genesis. And, and the reason I start with Genesis is because I have this passion for canonical critical interpretation where uh, the beginning of things, as Jesus put it in Matthew 19, is the original plan. Uh, so Abraham trusted God, and God took that as his righteousness, which in Hebrew is tzedakah. And the, interestingly enough, the common English Bible interprets that as his high moral character. Which means that they see this term as moral rather than legal. In 1819, God knows that Abraham will keep the way of Yahweh and he and his children will do righteousness and justice. A mishpat. Um, we're going to come to this a couplet of justice and righteousness, or righteousness and justice, in a moment. <clears throat> and I'll speak to it then. Uh, in 1919, Lot speaks of the angel's great kindness toward him. That is Kesed. Uh, you've done so much for me now, can you do a little beyond what is required and, and get me to stop right here instead of going to the mountains? Uh, in 25, I did this. 
this is King Abimelech, I did this, took Sarah, in the integrity of my poems. Uh, there's two words for hand. There's yad, which means, simply means hand, and there's uh, kaf, which means the poems, the hands like this. So I, I, he's saying, I took Sarah in the integrity of my hands, which means I was pure of heart. And that's translated in the Septuagint by Dikayasuni. Uh, Abraham tells Sarah to do the kindness of saying, he is my brother. <coughs> it's not required, Sarah, but please do this kindness for me. And that is translated as Dikayasuni. Jacob's honesty, which is how some translate this, Sedekah, uh, will answer him for him to Laban. Now we come to the rest of Torah. In your kindness, loyalty, kessed, you led the people you redeemed. This is translated by the Septuagint again as Dikayasuni. All of these words are translated with Dikayasuni. Mm -hmm. And so Exodus 34, 7, one who keeps mercy, that is kessed, for thousands. This is God's self-disclosure to Moses on Mount Sinai. And he's one who keeps kessed, and that's translated to kayasune, interestingly enough, by the Septuagint. Leviticus 19, 15, do not do injustice and judgment, nor show partiality to the poor, or defer to the great. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. This is more now thinking of it in the courtroom setting, uh, or in, in the setting of how you treat people. Uh, then Deuteronomy 9, 5, not because of your righteousness, Zedekah, which is translated to Kayasune, of course, or the uprightness of your heart, you have come to possess the land. In Deuteronomy 33:21, he, God, came at the head of the people and executed or did the righteousness or justice of Yahweh. The word to do is used in, a, in many different ways beyond that. In Akkadian, we used it. Uh, there used to be the expression, he did his math. Which means he opened his mouth. <laughs> but in Akkadian, it was he did his mouth. <laughs> uh, so, all of these words, you can see the variety of meanings behind the Kaimusune and the Septuagint. And these are the only, only places that the Kaimusune is used in the rest of Torah. Now we come to the prophets. And by far, the overwhelming majority of instances in which the Kyosinic is translated in the prophets is in Isaiah. All of the other prophets either don't have the Kyosinic in them at all, or they are, they are used a few times. Isaiah has line after line after line. Uh, so we're going to start with... The, you may not think Samuel and Kings are prophets, but they are. <laughs> They're the prophetic books in Hebrew can. Uh, so Samuel to Egypt, to Israel, farewell speech. Now take your position that I may hold judgment with you before Yahweh. The righteous acts, literally, righteousnesses. Plural form of Sedekah, Sedekoth, uh, of Yahweh that he did with you and your fathers. Now some translate this as saving deeds. And, of course, they're talking about all the things God has done for Israel from the time he brought them out of Egypt. 
And 1 Kings 3, 6, Solomon to God, you have done with your servant David great kindness because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness with heart of you. Is that moral or legal? Mm. It's, and, I, and recognize, and I teach ethics along with Old Testament. In ethics, there is overlap, clearly, between what is moral and what is legal. But there are some things that are moral that we don't have on the law books. For example, in the Ten Commandments, you should not covet your neighbor's life. There's, you can't really enforce that, can you? Uh, and, and when we think of legal, something that's legal, we, we kind of define it by what, what can be enforced externally. So, um, now again, uh, these are still Septuagint translations of Dikaiosune. So, Hosea 2.19, Yahweh to Israel, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and kindness and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in trustworthiness and you shall know Yahweh. This is, this is a, a, an intimacy statement. This is uh, about... Uh, God marrying Israel. Now we come to Isaiah. And I didn't, because there were so many, I didn't try to pick in. I'm just going to discuss it overall. Uh, the word righteousness is often paralleled with justice. But parallelism in Hebrew poetry does not really imply a synonymous relationship. According to James Kugel, the relationship resembles A and what's more, B. B completes A. So, for example, Isaiah 5.16, Yahweh of hosts is exalted in justice. Moreover, the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Uh, sometimes in Isaiah, righteousness seems to be used in a penal sense. For example, 10.23, destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, one commentator has translated this righteous anger because of the word overflowing, which often denotes anger. Now, when I did my master's thesis, I decided the best place to go to try to find out what Nikaiosune really meant was the legal papyrus documents. Assuming that it was a legal term, as most of the commentators suggested, I thought maybe that would be the best way to go. Well, there was little or no use of the term at all. <laughs> there was the term decay used, and I'll come to that in a minute. Uh, now, looking at Paul's contemporaries a little more closely, Josephus refers to someone's upright character by this term. So I'm going to underline where I'm going because this is hard to read. So, and here are two other examples, uh, quoting Josephus. From this, I think it will be apparent that we possess a code excellently designed to promote piety, friendly relations with each other, and humanity toward the world at large, besides justice, hardihood, and contempt of life. And the term that the translator of this passage used was justice. It could have been righteousness uh, just as well. What he's defending here when he says a code, we possess a code, is he's defending the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew law. 
A glance at them, that is the law, show that they teach the most genuine piety that invite men not to hate their fellows, but to share their possessions. That they are foes of injustice and scrupulous for justice. And here the underlined word is dikasune. Banish sloth and extravagance and teach men to be self-dependent and to work with a will that they deter them from war for the sake of conquest, but render them valiant defenders of the law themselves, inexorable in punishment, not to be duped by studied words, always supported by actions. For actions are invariable testimonials, plainer than any documents. This is, uh, this is an underlying thesis of Paul, right here. I have reason to believe after doing... This by the way, what I'm telling you now is a more recent study that I began about five years ago when I realized that in my Sabbath school class we were going to hit Romans somewhere in the, in the distant years. We were taking a, a study of the Bible, atonement and salvation in the Bible, starting with Genesis, uh, not doing every passage. I selected passages to work on. Um, and, but I knew I was, I was going to need to do this word study. And so I started, <laughs> I've been going at it five years. But in just the last week or so, uh, when I hit Philo and hit some places that sound very like Paul, I came to believe that these two contemporaries of Paul, he was familiar and he may have actually used them in his own words. So uh, in, in what Josephus does here, it sounds legal, but it also sounds moral. It has, has a kind of dual cast there. Uh, Philo uses the term word as righteousness in the sense of an attribute alongside a virtue, but that's not all Philo does. Um, or Philo. We usually say Philo, but I'm more used to Hebrew pronunciation, say Philo. Philo allegorizes the four rivers of Genesis 2 as various virtues. The largest river out of which flows the four is general virtue, goodness. He sees the Euphrates River as justice, because the other three stand for prudence, self-mastery, and courage. Justice is a fruitful virtue, and this is again Takayasune, that exists when the three parts of the soul are in harmony. He applies justice to the use of reason as a way to offset lust. He then personifies justice. It is the function of justice to assign to each what it deser he deserves, and justice sustains the part neither of prosecutor or defendant but of judge, even as the judge therefore makes it his business neither to conquer any persons nor to wage war on any and oppose them, but pronounces a judgment and awards what is just, so to justice affords each matter what it merits." What I see him doing here is saying, Dikaiosune is kind of the deciding part of your brain. It decides what is right. And so if you're in the court, it's, it's the judge. If you're in the arena of uh, moral righteousness, it's the decision not to do lust or the decision not to do things that are harmful. Now I'm going to switch to the Greek word decay. Because this word is strictly legal. And it most often means penal justice, sometimes used just as punishment. 
And it's only used three times in the New Testament. Acts 28.4, Paul is on Malta. Remember that little island where he got shipwrecked. And a viper comes out of the fire that he built to keep warm and fastens himself on Paul. And they say, justice has not allowed him to live. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice will not allow him to live. This is penal justice, right? And then when, of course, he shakes the viper off in the fire and remains unharmed, they think he's a god. So 2 Thessalonians 1.9, these will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. This is Paul talking about the final destruction of the wicked. So he uses decay in that context. And then in Jude 7, Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Again, the word is punishment. In Josephus, it conveys the sense of punishment handed over to decay equals being punished, or decay simply means penalty. It can also mean an indictment, a suit, or even justice. And in the Jewish wars, he avoids decaiosyne. His work, A Life Against Apion, seems to be a defense of Judaism. In Philo, it means penalty. In the Greek papyri documents I studied, decay is used predominantly for the term legal decision involving duties of marriage, litigation, and lawsuits. It was used in the sense of rights, claims, justice, penalty, and the cause of justice. So it's strictly a legal term. Now we have Paul. This is standard. Uh, well, I shouldn't say this is standard. This is the more, the more, the greater tendency is to translate this word as righteous rather than justice. So Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. And I included in this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. I have done that. Because in my study of parallelisms, since the same verb, revealed, is used both here and here, uh, they are synonymous. One is part of the other. So, the question is, how does Paul use the word dikaiosuni? Does he define it as righteousness or as justice? That is, does he use it in the ethical sense or in the legal sense? If the latter, legal justice, does he intend his readers to understand that justice as penal? To understand these questions, we will look at the meanings of other words Paul has used his study and state, study his statements and context within the Book of Romans and possibly within his other writings. So I want to talk, tune in to the word faith, because for Paul, this is extremely important. The Greek word for faith, pistis, can mean belief, faith, or trust. The Hebrew word for faith in Habakkuk 2.4, immuna, can mean faithfulness or trustworthiness. There is no noun for faith, belief, or trust. To get to those words, one must resort to the hyphil infinitive of Amon, which has, by the way, the same, it's built on the same root as Imuna. 
Uh, but it's a hifil infinitive. That means trust is caused, and and is caused by the faithfulness of the person you trust, or the trustworthiness of the person you trust. I will try to show that this is at the heart of Paul's belief in salvation by grace through faith. So the implications for Paul is that trust to Paul, trust is the cause of sin. Romans fourteen twenty three. It is the righteousness God wants in Romans 4, 3 to 8, and he's quoting there Genesis 15, 6. Further, Paul begins his statement about the death of Jesus with these words, but now apart from law, the righteousness of God has been demonstrated, having been witnessed to by the law and the prophets. By the latter terms, Paul means the Hebrew Bible, the law and the prophets. But when he says apart from law, he means by the use of law, or apart from a legal construct. So Paul is, when Paul talks about God's righteousness, he's not using it as a legal term. And that's why he says apart from law, the righteousness of God has been demonstrated. And, and the reason I say that is because when a noun is used without an article, it becomes a general canopy for all things pertaining to this. So it's use of law in general. It is not specifically law. Uh, in my canonical critical study of the covenants, I have concluded that God never wanted a covenant based on human performance or works. He only wanted complete trust. In order to obtain that, according to Paul, he must provide evidence of his trustworthiness. So Paul is therefore attempting to change his hearer's paradigm from a legal one to one of faith or trust. But in order to do that, he has to address the legal issues that are in their minds. I would like to propose that, relationally speaking, in a legal setting, one only needs to believe. The word belief does not necessarily imply a close trusting relationship with the one believed. This word works very well in the courtroom setting where God is the judge. So I sometimes ask my students, um, so you go into court and there's a judge there. Uh, what kind of relationship do you have? Is it just kind of like the relationship you have with your best friend? Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you chat with him? Do you take him out to eat? Do you or her? Uh, my relationship with judges has been over jury duty. And I remember arguing with the judge about getting out of jury duty in order to teach my classes. <laughs> and he wanted to know what I did when I got sick. And I said, I, I teach. <laughs> uh, he wasn't terribly happy with me. And we didn't have exactly a cordial relationship. <laughs> but he did let me off the hook. Um, now, if the judge found them not guilty, they would no doubt be filled with gratitude and an increased level of trust. But the relationship would still not be intimate like God wanted in Hosea, for example. So now we come to Romans 3, 21 to, 20, to 26. I'm sorry for the typo there. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Since all have sinned and come, fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. 
He does this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. So we're going to deal with several of these corollary topics. Atonement and God's wrath. In a sense, Paul is speaking of divine justice in this passage. So, God passing over former sins is a main reason why the atonement takes place. And that passing over former sins brings up all kinds of things like God's wrath, His judged justice, and so on. So, we come to Romans 1, 18-32. Romans 2, 1-11 speaks of judgment. And then... um, his quotation from the Old Testament states, Length how none is righteous. So several terms require explanation. The wrath of God, the judgment, and atonement, hilasterian. Is it propitiation or expiation or something different? Paul parallels synonymously the wrath of God with God's righteousness. While the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And I take that as an ablative of separation. Uh, and which it can be in the Greek, <clears throat> which means that God's wrath is is what happens when we're separated. It has to do with separation from heaven. And therefore, Paul describes God's wrath as revealed by a threefold repetition in 24, 26, and 28, where he says, therefore God gave them up to, and then lists results of all kinds of sins that give rise to further sinning. His use of the verb to give up is unique. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus is given up to the authorities for trial and crucifixion, but never given up without an object. I should remove direct there. Uh, yet Paul uses this verb, paradinomy, without a direct object, without an object, five times, always in reference to Jesus' death. And while I worked on my master's, I wondered where he got this peculiar use of the word. And well, after I, of course, long after I got my master's degree and I was working on my doctorate, I began working one Sabbath afternoon on uh, Isaiah 53 and the Septuagint. And to my surprise, the Suffering Servant poem uses that same word in nearly the same way three times, just as Paul uses it three times. And so in Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord gave him up to our sins. This is not in the Hebrew text. This is in the Septuagint text. And because, in verse 12, because his soul was given up to death, in also verse 12, because of our sins he was given up. There's no object other than the first one to our sins. But Paul may have also gotten it from another source, and that's Philo, or Philo. And further he says, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall die the death. He's going back, Philo is going back to Genesis 2.17. And yet after they have eaten, not merely do they not die, but they beget children and become authors of life to others. So God says in the day you eat of it, you will surely die, but they don't die. Instead they have children and become authors of life. What then is to be said to this? 
that death is two of, of two kinds. One, uh, that of the man in general. The other, the soul in particular. The death of the man is the separation of the soul from the body. He's obviously following Greek thought there. Uh, but the death of the soul is the decay of virtue and the bringing in of wickedness. It is for this reason that God says not only to die, but to die the death, indicating not the death common to us all, but that special death properly so-called, which is of the soul becoming entombed in passions and wickedness of all kinds, which fits Romans 1 very, very well. Uh, observe that wherever Moses speaks of dying the death, he means the penalty death, not that which takes place in the course of nature. That one in the course of nature is with the soul's parted from the body, but the penalty death takes place when the soul dies to the life of virtue and is alive only to that of wickedness. That seems to be underlying Paul's message in Romans 1, because he doesn't talk about fire and all of that. He talks about being handed over to the consequences of their sinful ways. And we come to the judgment. Paul speaks rather vigorously against judging since the sins he says we are all guilty of are the sins he lists in Romans 1. He basically says we're all in that same boat. He pleads with his hearers to realize that God's goodness is meant to lead them to repentance. But he points out that by your hard and penitent heart you are storing up wrath in yourself in the day of wrath and God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This word that I have chosen to translate in is a, it means it's a deity form. It's not an actual word. It's part of the uh, uh, preposition. Or, yeah, well, it's a preposition that's buried with the pronominal word. But it's wrath. It could be wrath for yourself, or it could be wrath in yourself. And I have chosen that because it fits more with what he says in Romans 1. Uh, when, so, for he will repay according to each one's deeds to those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life while those who are self-seeking who do not obey the truth in wickedness, but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. Notice there will be wrath and fury, not God will be angry and, and inflict something on them. This uh, being repay according to one's deeds, remember what Josephus says that it is that our actions are the evidence. So Paul says something similar later. Should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of those whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness? So the end of those things is death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So a debate has raged over whether Jesus' death... So basically what I'm trying to say is that Paul sees God's wrath and judgment as something we do to ourselves, not something God does to us. And uh, a debate has raged over whether Jesus' death in some way appeased the wrath of God as a result of Paul's use of the word hilasterion, a word used by Septuagint translators to render the mercy seat or the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Since the word hilasterion is related to other words than the Greek meant to propitiate, it has been thought that in some ways, Jesus, some way Jesus' death in this way reconciled the angry father to us. Yet there are several things against this. Septuagint translators, as well as the Hebrew Bible, carefully renders uh, the idea of atonement in Leviticus to avoid its meaning of appeasement. In order for it to have the meaning of appeasement, it needs an object. You don't just... Uh, 
wipe off, you wipe off something. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm using the Akkadian now behind the word kipper, which in Arabic means to cover, but in Akkadian means to wipe off. I think Akkadian is closer to the meaning uh, because it's the idea of removal. Uh, but the, the Hebrew writers and the Septuagint translators carefully rendered it so as to avoid a, a direct object and to put in there on behalf of sin or for sin. Paul himself repeatedly speaks of God reconciling to himself, and that's the other piece. If you read all of what Paul says, God, he never sees God as needing reconciliation. He sees us as the ones needing reconciliation. Uh, therefore, the term means to reconcile only in the sense of us to God. So my interpretation of Romans 3, 21 to 26 has to do with Paul's major concern for God's righteousness. He sees that in order for God to deal with sin, he himself first has to be established as righteous. And there are several things that, are, that have been questioned, apparently, that lie behind his argument. Some are unfaithful. Will their faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness? Faithfulness. No, God, Paul says, God will prove true, though everyone will lie, so that you may be justified in your words when you are judged. And he's quoting there Psalm 51. But the most important question has to do with his passing over former sins. So the reason for the Jesus death is because, and, and this is where I think he, behind his thought lies Philo, uh, and his belief that it goes back to Genesis 2, where God says, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But then in chapter 3, they don't. They go on to have children and breathe life. So when's God going to deal with sin? Because uh, Paul believes that the righteousness of God has been challenged, it is therefore necessary to, to uh, regain trust, to have it revealed, to have it demonstrated, to have it shown or proved. And he uses all three of those terms. So this is very important to Paul. Uh, what if Paul sees the problem of sin as a loss of trust in God because of these questions. And in order to solve that and bring us back into a right relationship with God of trust, something has to be shown. Well, this involves death. Who's going to die? And that's where God, in Christ, reconciles the world to himself through his death. So how does, the question might be, how does Jesus' death do this? If Paul is utilizing Philo, I believe he is, uh, I think I just talked about that. So what I say here is, for Paul, God in his forbearance passed over former sins. It seemed that he hadn't said the truth and therefore that he wasn't righteous. And it seemed also that sin hadn't met its due, and since there were no consequences, God wasn't just. So he here pulls together both the legal and the non-legal, the moral issues, and puts them together at the cross. For this reason, God showed Jesus publicly dying to show that he is righteous. But how did Jesus show that? Paul says that Jesus was given up because of our trespasses and was raised for our justification, Romans 4.25. Jesus died because of our sins. And this is lying back behind Romans 1 
and Romans 4.25 and all the other places where he supplies this word of giving people up, lying behind that is this construct in, in Isaiah 53, in the Septuagint, where Jesus is given, or the suffering servant is given over to sin. He, and, it, and, and, the, and the Hebrew as well, uh, the suffering servant bears our sins. Uh, so Jesus died because of our sins. Sin is what took his life. So by so dying, God made it clear that he was righteous in what he said to our first parents, that this is the nature of God's wrath. Sin destroys not God, and you don't need to be afraid of God, but can call him Father. The high point of Romans is not chapter 3. The high point of Romans is chapter 8. It's like you have stair steps going up to chapter 8, and then stair steps coming back down. So in Romans 8, the whole crux is, we don't need to be afraid of God anymore. We've been set free from fear. We're no longer his slaves. Um, and thus we are reconciled to God and want to trust him. He has therefore set us right, forgiving our past sins, and setting us free to live trustingly in him. That equals righteousness. The resurrection makes it clear that Jesus' demonstration of God's righteousness is adequate, and without that we would not be truly set right. So here's my translation. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation to anyone, everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed out of trust, into trust, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live in trust. For the wrath of God is revealed away from heaven against all human impiety and unrighteousness, who by unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been demonstrated, having been witnessed to the law, too, by the law and the prophets. But the righteousness of God is through the trustworthiness of Jesus for all who trust. For there is no distinction. For since all have sinned and come short of God's character, they have been set right as a gift of his grace to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth through his death as an establishment of the means of trust. I, I use the blood as, as simply symbolic of his death. This death was to show his righteousness because in his forbearance he had apparently passed over men's former sins. This was to show at the present time he is righteous and sets right those who have faith in Jesus. So, the question is, is it legal or experiential? My belief is that Paul is trying to meet people for whom it is legal, but he's trying to also bring them to a paradigm shift of trust. So, he, what went wrong in the beginning was that we lost trust in God. We came to view God as angry and needing appeasement. Since we had invented laws as a means of requiring and regaining trust, we came to see that we were in legal trouble with God. But the truth is that sin is an, as an intruder and a deceiver had tricked us out of a trusting relationship with God. Um, I'm, I'm working on a canonical critical review of sin. The earliest references to sin are not legal, I don't think. Um, where are you? Who told you you were naked? You know, those, those don't sound like your normal legal processes. And then um, in Cain, the Cain and Abel stories, sin, the first time you meet sin in the Bible, actually, sin is a, rob, a robates, which is a demonic thing in, in ancient Mesopotamia 
It is a robate pounce, ready to pounce on you and devour you. Mm. So it's an intruder and deceiver. Uh, Eve says she was tricked by the serpent. Uh, that's the earliest review of sin. By dying in our place and demonstrating that sin, not God, leads to death, God made it possible for us to trust him again. And when we are reconciled to him and won back to trust, he that forgiver gladly forgives our sinful past because he called us I think that's it. I, I think that your first statement there is interesting because it hasn't always been our assumption that Adam and Eve had been able to observe God long enough to have trusted. How do we know how long that was? Maybe the test was given too soon. <laughs> and they hadn't had enough time to develop the confidence. You know, I think I think that is the whole reason why uh, in part we can be salvaged is you know my understanding is there's a distinct difference between knowing God for a long period of time like the angels and, and other beings have um, and then having this uh, thing with Lucifer come up but it's another thing to not have experienced been through that process not knowing God that well and being deceived and I, I, I really see that the redemption part of this is uh, redeeming us from that deception and that's why in a sense in a sense you can almost talk of acquittal because if we hadn't been deceived we would not have done this the Greek in Romans 3.21 allow for the the translation, uh, all have said, and continue to fall short of the glory of God. I didn't bring my great new testament. You know that. Uh, it could be a present tense. I, I, just, I think I didn't think it is a present tense. It could be. I spent uh, six hours trying to get this finally pulled together. Yesterday and by the time. I think that's, a, that's an important yeah, point that, that we aren't perfect. We're, we're perfectly right. saved, but we're not absolutely perfect. Well, Paul wrestles with that in Romans 7. Even, and doesn't uh, the distinction between Protestantism and Catholicism, unrighteousness, is that whether it's a declaring righteous or a making righteous. Yeah. I see it as the right relationship. I, I see it, I, I see the whole thing as having to do with trust rather than having to do with performance. We're, we're saved by being declared righteous, not by being made righteous. It doesn't make any difference in the end. Sure. It's all it's it's the difference. As long as we're on consensus, whatever did he accepts us. Well, I hear what you're saying. That's the dichotomy. But the righteousness of Christ declared righteousness. That's the dichotomy, the forensic dichotomy between works versus uh, being declared righteous. But I say that that is a false dichotomy. And the real problem is trust. And once God has our trust. Right. Okay, well then it's declared righteousness. Question. In your last slide, you said that... Um, you quoted Paul by saying, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. 
Why do you think Paul said to the Jew first? Well, because I, I think he talks about that later on when he says that the two the Jews were given the scriptures. Okay. They were given the Torah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Just let me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> it's really this difference between on the legal side, they're looking at punishment and justice. But on the experiential side, it's like Paul is trying to show this is about relationship and reconciliation, which is really a different thing than punishment and justice. But it isn't totally, and I'm going to go back now in time. The, in the early periods of law, in ancient Eastern law, the judge was more of a conciliator between two estranged parties than he was a person who made the verdict. It was in the Neo-Babylonian period, even in the Neo-Assyrian period it was this way, but in the Neo-Babylonian period, everything shifted to being the verdict. And that's when law really became hardcore, legal, uh, forensic, and very much about punishment. All right, our time is up. Did I miss anybody? Peter. 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 Here, well, the king, the king doesn't have as much power. Well, he does have the ultimate, not ultimate. He has a penal, penultimate power of law because he's under Shamash, the sun god, who is the god of justice. And if you don't like what the king hands down to you, you can go to Shamash for your prize. So it's a, it's law from ontology or divinity rather yeah. than yeah, okay. yeah, it really is. Uh, and you still have very contractual relationships. But the contract is always underlined by that sort of like moral constant. It is. Because I got hung up for like half an hour because it wasn't working and then I realized that I was thinking 1700s, not 1700 BC. <laughs> okay, I think it's time to quit. God, we... Thank you that you have met us where we are, spoken our language, and at the same time worked to reconcile us to you, that the problem of reconciliation is with us and not with you. We ask that you will every day reconcile us in you and increase our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.